The dog was banished. Ugh. Time is nigh. All right, let's do it. Crom. I was born ready. All right. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Chromecast. I'm Luke. I'm Josh. I am Jonathan. And tonight we're going to uh, continue to discuss uh, grimoires as our topic for the seventh season. So this is the third episode. And in this episode, we're going to, I guess, focally be uh, discussing the yellow sign by Robert W. Chambers, but we're going to also pull in some some other mentions of the King in Yellow uh, as our as our grimoire of topic tonight. Uh, yeah, this is going to be fun. This this is going to be a spidery discussion, though. I think. What have you guys been doing to prepare for this episode? I read the story. <laughs> that's step one. You did your homework. <laughs> yeah, that's homework. <laughs> I've yeah. been busy translating. The, the ramblings of uh, this long dead language from crumbling books into the modern tongue. Nice, nice. Yeah, no big deal. I've, I've been reading about the meanings of colors. Okay. Yeah. Uh, here in just the past few minutes, I've been uh, sipping on a, a ham shandy, uh, which, is, which is very yellow in color. The ham, the ham in yellow. The ham, the ham in yellow. Uh, I guess that's a good segue into uh, what what we're drinking. Uh, we can we can start it off. What did you bring for us, Josh? I brought a, a six pack of tall cans of Ham's beer and uh, a small container of uh, lemonade concentrate. And this is a trick that I learned from you, Luke, a couple Sundays ago. Um, and what you do is you pour the, uh, lemonade concentrate into a pitcher and then you top it off with beer and then you stir it and you have a homemade shandy for about five bucks for yeah, a pitcher. It's good. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. That's what we have. So we got that. Uh, we have a, a six pack of, uh, West six IPAs, which is a fairly yellow straw colored beer. So we've got some, uh, some, some hoppier yellow beer to, to drink. Uh, what are you drinking, John? Uh, I am drinking Wild Turkey 101. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's good. Dependable. Reliable. <laughs> Not really yellow. Not really yellow. Dude, but you can get it at the Total Wine that's opened up here in Lexington now for like 16 and a half bucks a bottle. Yeah? I've never seen it that cheap. It's Yeah, that's very cheap. It's still Did you get it? I have not yet. It's still 19... 19- 99 at the the Kroger Wine and Spirits. Yeah. Oh, it will be bought. Yeah. I think I might. <laughs> How could you pass on that? Yeah. That's that's a that's a deal. That's half off. It's good stuff, man. Do you feel like you're cheating on Liquor Barn when you go into Total uh Total Wine? No. Liquor Barn's just as big a devil as them, I think. <laughs> at least in Kentucky. Yeah. 
they uh I think their business practices are fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh I guess they won't be a sponsor for the Chromecast. Uh, I don't that's think okay. I don't think that ever was a possibility. Wild Turkey is a more rational possibility. Yeah. Uh <laughs> you know, whenever they're tired of McConaughey. <laughs> Gonna come to we us. will be talking about <laughs> we will be talking about McConaughey tonight. Yeah, but I mean, all they have to do is ask. The door is open. <laughs> we got to keep it cold because mm. that's not going to that's not going to stay cold. Yeah, we got to drink volumes. it fast. That's what we're drinking. Uh, let's go ahead and we can uh, we can segue over into uh, the one thing and get a, get topical for a minute. John, do you have a one thing prepared? I do, yes. Thank you, Luke. Um, my one thing for this episode is the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> I got one for our anniversary. My wife purchased it for uh, for me, and I've been playing Mario Kart 8 on it. Nice. Pretty awesome. Have you unlocked Rainbow Road yet? Uh, it's kind of it's different. They all are unlocked for you already you unlock new kinds of cars the more things you defeat though oh okay yeah cool rainbow road is still tough Mm. perhaps even tougher now because there's like parts where it spins you backwards and then forwards and there's no guardrail on part of it of course yeah um do you have the legend of zelda breath of the wild i don't i've never done any zelda games i've never played any zelda is uh, the Nintendo Switch, does it have, like, the the Nintendo Store? Can you buy old Nintendo games on it and play it? Yes. If I create myself a Nintendo account, I believe I could do that. Um, cool. Yeah, so you need to play The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past. Okay. What's that one about? Um, they're all pretty much about the same thing. Uh, yeah? Yeah. You you play as Link and you have to stop Ganon from being summoned into the world or getting unlimited power or killing Princess Zelda. Is Ganon like a Cthulhu monster? Ganon is a, a giant pig man. Oh, cool. <laughs> he's a, he's a, a pig man warlock. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Yep, of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> Who would you be normally in Mario Kart? Uh, Yoshi. Yeah, I'm yeah. a Yoshi. Yoshi's fast. Yoshi. He doesn't handle well, but I can deal. Luke? Uh, generally, I was like Luigi. You were Luigi? Yeah. Dependable. Just like... I used to... The, the, the you know, average across all metrics. Right. Dependable. Right. Reliable. I would. I was Yoshi, DK, or Luigi in that order, depending on what other people were. DK is slow, but his, his momentum is like max. Yeah. Once you get going, it's hard to stop that that monkey train. <laughs> is there any difference really between Bowser and Donkey Kong? I feel like Bowser's even slower. You think so? Yeah. I'd have to see. We could make. Let's make a spinoff cast <laughs> of Mario Kart. I bet there is a Mario Kart cast. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're cutting into their turf right now with my stuff, so maybe we should move on to Luke. 
Oh, this guy? Oh. Uh, my one thing is uh, a band that I recently discovered that I've been infatuated with. Uh, I guess it's it's like a it's a project kind of band. It's a specific dude. His name is Manuel Gagno. Uh, maybe Ga- Gagnu is how you would say it if you're totally like Americanizing it. But I think he's like a Swiss American. I'm not totally for sure. Uh, but uh, the name of the the project is Zeal and Ardor, which is uh, I guess avant garde style style music in that it it takes like uh some of the musical uh uh what's the right word like uh stylings no like uh some of the tropes of like black metal and pairs it up with like the lyrical structure and like the song structure of like negro spirituals that date back to like uh you know pre civil war like antebellum style music it's not actually taking like antebellum like spirituals it's material written very much in that in that style but it is this crazy juxtaposition and it's super catchy but yet it is absolutely metal but i am sure that a lot of like diehard metalheads probably uh are uh pooping all over it i don't know i loved it uh i just recently stumbled across the second album, which is called Stranger Fruit, which just dropped as of this recording, and I've been devouring it. There's an earlier album that was released that was called Devil is Fine, and I think it's kind of appropriate to be talking about this band in the context of this story, because that album cover has a fairly neat uh, uh, picture in that it has... Uh, like the seal of <laughs> a Satan uh, or a seal of Satan, the sigil of Lucifer superimposed over uh, a slave uh, who freed himself and 17 other slaves during the civil war. And that fellow was named Robert small. So it's a, uh, a photograph of, of a, of a slave that freed himself with like the, the seal of, of Lucifer superimposed on it. So it's, it's very interesting and it's, it's weird to the core. Uh, I think the music's pretty cool because you don't necessarily think about, uh, Negro spirituals as being, uh, either satanic or, uh, uh, sort of weird in their elements. But in a lot of ways, I mean, there's a lot of subversion that's going on there with, with the, uh, the slave versus free sort of symbolism and the underlying messages and a lot of that content. I think taking that and then overlaying, some truly like nihilistic sort of lyrical structure and, and, and content just sort of like subverts it even further. And so if you're looking for something that's that's great to listen to and fairly catchy but is pretty abrasive in places, check out Zeal and Ardor. Do you want to play a song? The first couple songs are not metal. This is where... It, one thing that I like about the album too is how it's sort of like brings you in to the the more abrasive like extreme musical structure uh slowly which i think is it's a it's a really well put together album so this is pretty catchy i want to stomp my feet yeah
so it sort of yo-yos back and forth like that a bit and it just it dive bombs like this song specifically has some wailing guitars that just do like some actual like whammy bar dive bombs and stuff that are just out of there so it's a uh, it's good stuff yeah i dig it how'd you find out about him i was just surfing on Bandcamp, and i said that's a really cool album cover i'm gonna get it uh, after I listened to it, I didn't just like buy it outright, but I like pulled it up. I mean, that, that second album cover has that same weird sign, that sigil of Satan overlaid like on a black, or I'm sorry, on a purple sort of background. So it's very uh, interesting and eye catching, and it's it's mystical. Uh, and so that was enough to draw my attention. And then I queued up a couple songs. And I'm like, holy, holy smokes, this is great. And I just sort of went off the deep end. Yeah. So awesome. That's my one thing. Uh, Josh, what do you got? Nothing nearly as cool. Uh, I've been reading a book by um, comic book author and uh, wizard who probably has a lot of grimoires in his in his study, uh, Grant Morrison, called Super Gods. Um, And this is a book about um, masked superheroes, vigilantes. Superman, Batman, uh, the mythological underpinnings of those characters, uh, where they fit into a historical context, both in terms of pop culture, but also in terms of uh, the arts. Um, And so this book uh, thus far, and I'm only about 100 or so pages in, um, this book seems like it would be really useful in a a college class about like comics and, and their historical, you know, roots and significance. Uh-huh. Um, and it definitely plays up the, you know, the, this is a, uh, distinctly American sort of mythology. And it's cool because, you know, uh, Morrison is Scottish, right? Like he's, uh, definitely has kind of an outsider's perspective on things. Um, and I don't know, it's, it's just a neat take on, on these, uh, well-worn and well-loved characters that everyone's familiar with. Uh-huh. The the plutonic aspects of Bruce Wayne and the the uh, Apollonian aspects of Superman. Yeah, and, yeah. cool. <laughs> it's, it's it's cool. I like it a lot. So, uh if if you're a comic book fan like myself and you're a mythology nerd like myself, uh and you haven't read this, uh pick it up. You could get it for a buck or two at the, the local used bookstore. Uh, it seems like every time I go to half price, I see a copy of this. Cool. Yeah. And Grant Morrison is definitely a wizard of some sort. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> didn't you tell us about the time that he had a wizard battle with Alan Moore? I hear that, that that's why they don't get along is, yeah, that they're diametrically opposed wizards. They don't worship the same snake god? Nope, apparently not. Hmm. I could see how that might cause uh, some strife. I bet they... Uh... <laughs> They were having like a tantric war, going back and forth, focusing their their manpower, <laughs> their, their psychosexual energies at one another. I mean, Moore is definitely into that stuff. Oh yeah, he's a Jack Parsons kind of guy. Yeah. Uh, so that's three things. We put them all together, and we call the segment of the show one thing. Excellent. Excellent. All right, so proceeding as you have foreseen, we're gonna have to uh, we're gonna have to tackle this this topic, this story, this uh, this 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 uh, material here in 
uh, sort of a broad fashion. The way we're going to do this, let's do this. Let's uh, sort of do round robin and we'll talk about a handful of things, maybe three things if we don't overlap with one another, uh, that we like specifically about Robert W. Chambers' The Yellow Sign. And then uh, from there, since we all did a little bit of independent reading, maybe we can compare and contrast our extra stories with The Yellow Sign. I think that's a good idea. Should we give a little background on Chambers himself? Did you read anything about him as as a, a person? A little bit. Yeah, I don't I don't know much either. So I was hoping to lean on you guys. I know that he was born in 1865. He's a New York City native. I think he lived there a good chunk of his life. Um, he's trained as an illustrator, yeah. not not as a writer, which I think is interesting. Um, and. He had written several things, but The King in Yellow was his first big hit, and that came out in 1895, and the success of that is what convinced him that he needed to keep on writing, is, is what I understand. Yeah, yeah, I I, uh, I know that he you know wrote weird fiction, but he had a couple transitional points in his writing like he he abruptly left the you know the illustration work to move into writing and then he did weird fiction for a bit and then he jumped over to romantic material and then he jumped over to some uh uh i guess military sort of like war type stories and then he jumped over to historical fiction and that's basically the short uh synopsis of 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 his writing pedigree according to like the i, I was listening to the front end of the uh, the repairer of reputations is that what it's called, right, Josh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. the first story in the collection. Yeah. And so that's I know you read that. I st- I listened to like the first ten minutes, but I wasn't able to get through the whole the whole story. But on the front end of a Tales to Terrify podcast, they they did you did like a, a Chambers sort of rundown, and so I didn't know that he jumped around quite so much with his writing. But that's pretty cool that he was able to sort of like. I don't know, like hit it and quit it and do like a couple different things like <laughs> over the, the course of his whole career. I mean, he he was an artist. He was just it's cool that he was able to do sort of a lot of different stuff. He dabbled. Yeah, it seems like he dabbled. And, and even in the weird fiction, even though this this collection, The King in Yellow, is so monumental in terms of its influence in the weird tale in weird fiction, um, he didn't really return to the weird fiction well all that much. Um, that's not to say that he didn't at all, just not as frequently as, as you might uh, expect. Yeah, this wasn't his uh, the only thing that defined who Chambers was as an artist. This was just a facet of him. And I think, uh, you know, we'll get into how he influenced other writers, but this seems like a timely place to say that in supernatural horror in literature lovecraft's uh, essay on the topic of weird fiction he says of chambers one cannot help regretting that he did not further develop a, uh, a vein in which he could so easily have become a recognized master he just you know he wrote these masterful tales he only wrote a few of them um and then didn't come back to it and obviously the spark was there um, and so I think it'll be fun to dig into these stories, the themes, uh, their place in the, the weird tale canon and, uh, all of that stuff. Cool. So, uh, I guess at this point, John, did you have anything else to add about like, uh, 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 chambers as a man or are we, are we good to jump into the story? You think it's rock and roll. Okay. The W stands for Wario, I think. <laughs> Oh, Wario. 
He does have a nice mustache. <laughs> yeah, he does. <laughs> so, uh, I guess just superficially, uh, what what did you guys think about this story versus some of the other stuff that we've read uh and maybe that will be like an organic way to talk about some of the things that we really really did dig out of the story yeah the yellow sign um you want to go first john sure uh what i liked about it yeah it was spooky i mean it's just kind of like a scary story right there's like a weird dude that looks like a worm and I kept trying to find out what a coffin worm really is. I didn't know if you guys knew what that really is alluding to at all. I just assumed that it was some sort of uh, some sort of decomposer, right? That was able to right. bur- burrow into unprotected wooden coffins. I had hoped that there was an actual insect or some other arthropod I could look at and get a good visualization of this guy. But I guess maybe it's just a maggot because I I yeah. googled coffin worm six ways from sunday and the only thing that really came up was a heavy metal band that perhaps <laughs> luke is familiar with <laughs> is, is there a coffin fly is it is there like a sarcophagid there's a flesh fly flesh fly okay yeah yeah i, I didn't uh, know if there was a specific species called coffin flies yeah i don't know uh there is there is forids four oh forids hmm. mega celia scalaris we're getting in the weeds here. The entomological weeds. Well, They're often known as the humpback flies, coffin flies, or the scuttle flies. Cool. So maybe, maybe they're coffin worms. I don't they, know. They uh, adults are three millimeters in length, so maybe oh, not. Maybe not. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I guess I just pictured it as like a grub, like not as a, you know, right. like, like something that was like sort of a, a, a bulbous, pale, soft bodied, just like. Like that sort of, like, soft, flaccid, like, just dead flesh kind of, kind of vision. That's what I was thinking of. And I think of that. I think of like, like white grubs. I was. I pictured the, the church, uh, caretaker guy, the character in the the story, uh-huh. uh, looking like the. I don't. I know this character has a name, but I don't know what it is. But there's. In Hellraiser, the Cenobite, like yeah, just with yeah. the jowls and like the the flesh that is Doughy. clammy, yeah. yeah. Well, I guess so. That's one of the things like that that I wrote down here that I really did like about this story. Uh, the evil is like uh, decay, like as a as like a permeating driving force. Like this is a, a story that's about decadence and decay. Like that's the an entropy, I guess, is a lot of maybe what goes into understanding of the the King in Yellow as a as a play. Like you understand that, and you understand the entropy and like the the cosmic horror of it all. But the the decay and the way that that's symbolized in a in a variety of ways is one of the things that I really did like about the story. I think the narrative is, I mean, it's it's a little bit loosey goosey, but the the plot itself is really interesting and pretty uh pretty elegant i think it it struck me as being in the lineage of edgar Allan poe for sure like this is a gothic story in a way but there's this weird element of the play the king in yellow that you mentioned so how does that work you know from from the 
the standpoint of these stories? Why why are we including the King in Yellow in our grimoire season? So that was actually something that I was thinking about after reading uh, at least the the King in Yellow, or I'm sorry, reading the Yellow Sign and then thinking about the King in Yellow that it's not it's not like a book of spells. It's just it's more of a it's an eye opener because it's a play, right? Like that's right. that's what it is. So it's almost as if you're reading this book of of poetry or prose that is illuminating the the truth of the matter. And so that to me, it still sort of falls in line with with a, a better understanding and perhaps like how you would be able to. Uh, better control like the cosmos like I, I think a lot of the grimoires are are that they're spell books that allow you to sort of like exert forces at a, at a level that man was not meant to do you know that kind of way but here it's the uh you know pulling back the veil and getting the glimpse of how things truly are and i get the sense from at least the little bit that i've read here of these chamber stories the people that read the king in yellow uh simultaneously are both like ecstatic with joy and horrified by what they see. And they don't necessarily seem, uh, altogether like dissatisfied with having read it. It's like, they're not necessarily sorry that they've read it. Does that make sense? Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's not that they regret having done it. Um, but, in my mind, that's because they lose their faculties. Like they're no longer reading it opens up a new plane of existence or a new dimension that you can perceive in some way that maybe it doesn't, you know, directly give you knowledge of how the universe works. But as a result of, of reading the King in yellow, um, you, you are now more, at the mercy of the universe than you were before, I guess you, you've put yourself into this realm where, uh, ultimately everything dies and fades away. Um, and you were always in it. It's just now you realize it. It's, it's like, um, eating the fruit from the, the tree yeah. of, of knowledge of good and evil. Like you, right. you, now you have this knowledge that the, the universe is coming to, you know, uh, it's, it's ultimate conclusion in some way. Yeah. That's a little rambly, but that's, I don't know. That's, that's how I gathered this. I think it fits thematically with our season. It's just not a grimoire in the same way that the Necronomicon might be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you brought up the, the idea of not being able to unsee something. I think part of the, the power, and I know we'll probably get into, uh, uh, True Detective and and some of the content there within that uh, first season here in this discussion too down the road, but uh, I think I think part of that is like the there's within that bit of popular fiction uh, there's this idea of antinatalism and that's something that pops up uh, in some in some headier sort of horror fiction like Ligotti and that kind of stuff but but the idea of antinatalism is you know very closely allied with the viewpoints expressed by the people that have read 
uh, the King in Yellow. You know, they've seen things, but if they could do it all over again, it would have been better to have never been born. And perhaps that's the that's the ultimate sort of trajectory that that needs to happen here, knowing the the entropy and sort of the 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 chaos that's 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 bound to happen. And if that's, I mean, I think antinatalism is a pretty <laughs> it's a pretty uh, cynical sort of perspective but there's level to levels to it like i think of uh there's a podcast uh uh, one of sam harris's waking up podcasts and i just pulled it up here there's a guy named david benatar who's a who is a a philosopher who's an espousal espouses anti-natalism as a viewpoint and one of the things that struck me listening to that uh philosopher speak is that you know Anti-natalists, the the select few that might ally with that, don't necessarily have this epiphany and go walk off a bridge. That's not like it's not an argument to just outright end our lives. The the, the way that like Rustin Cole might sort of like sort of make those kinds of really just outright horrible statements in True Detective, but rather the realization that things are unwinding. You shouldn't make the situation worse in the long run through procreation i think that's the general standpoint within that sort of like philosophical uh leaning at least like the way that like it's contemporarily seen but i know in this horrific sense just the idea that humans aren't going to propagate and continue to uh be stewards and sort of overlords of at least like earth that's that's a that's a scary thing and i think that ties up nicely with like the the sort of pulling back the veil and just being horrified with what you see like that's that is cosmic horror i just meandered even further dude no no well i i started the meander but i i think you ended where i wanted to go it, it's a very nihilistic at, at least the the couple stories i read like it it it's an undercurrent of nihilism runs through it yeah so what was another sort of element? So we've talked about just the, the symbol of, of uh, the king in yellow and, and what it might represent. And we've talked about like decay. Like what were some other elements from the story that you guys, that you liked? I dig the fact that we don't get the whole picture of what's going on with this cursed play. And it, it feels, it doesn't feel unfinished in the way that like you don't get to know everything you need to know. It feels mysterious in the way that further captivates you and probably is why this 1895 book is something that's still in print and something that still captivates a lot of folks today is that there's this weird thing and you don't know quite quite what made it quite why it's cursed quite why it's a bad thing that people are involved with it you just see the effects of it and get the sense of the the nastiness around it and I, I like that. I think that far too often nowadays, if you were to have something like this, they would want to let you know the lineage of the king in yellow, that it was part mm-hmm. of the Cthulhu mythos, that it's part of this, it's part of that. And it, we're very much about that sort of unveiling the lineage of our pop culture items nowadays, whereas this is by probably by nature of being one of the first pieces of that it's its own thing that doesn't have any connectors to go back to you. You're just creeped out by it. I like that. 
yeah, I like that the content of the 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 book or the the play is is not you don't even know what the hell the plot is. No, uh, yeah. And at least like within the story of the yellow sign, like this was one of the other things that I wrote down like we don't know what the yellow sign actually looks like nor do we uh know even what it means. We just know that this fellow did in fact find it. Like our narrator, the artist, <laughs> it was given to him because it was picked up uh by uh the uh the, the well what's her name i'm I'm spacing here uh tessie tessie there we go who's at once one of the models that he that he's been painting for some number of years and then becomes a love interest uh you know we don't know what it is we know what it's not it's not uh like and <laughs> it's not relating to a couple different ancient civilizations in terms of like what the symbol is. But that's like, that just lets your mind wonder. I was really struck by in the intro, just the, the way that chambers is able to depict this, the way this painting has gone wrong. So he's painting Tessie in the Mm -hmm. beginning and he looks down at it and the colors are all off and there's this horrible yellow, twinge to it this this unnatural kind of jaundiced look to his uh rendition of of her and he's just he's trying to correct it but the more he tries and to to fix this error the worse it becomes and it just is it's such a uh a, a good analogy for how this story plays out i think like he he sees something kind of off mm-hmm. right in the the personage of the church watchman and he he looks into it more to try and you know rationalize what this person is and and how this dream f- connects to it and and the more he learns the more he tries the worse things become yeah so i i thought that was a a cool touch and it's I don't know. It, it sets the, the foundation. It builds the framework for the weirdness in this story. Yeah. I think that's like the, the, the sort of recurrent, uh, theme expressed by characters and by their actions and by the symbols within the story are these like non, non sentient sort of elements like the, the yellow sign itself. Uh, all of it like you're not ever beat over the head with that theme it doesn't strike me because you don't think about the fact outright that the the mark on the painting is the the same like like you know tessie sort of uh revealing her feelings to the artist and that realization and his efforts to try to smooth that over it's the same as trying to smooth out the marred spot on the painting, which is the same thing as the, the recurrent outright sort of cosmic horror elements that this fellow is encountering throughout the story. Like there's three or four instances of this theme coming through and they all just sort of work together in harmony because it's a damned plot structure, like the way that this plays out. Yeah, I think that's that, that's that's beautiful as far as I'm concerned, and I think that's the real strength of this story to me. Uh, it's it's spooky in that sort of redundancy uh, that keeps playing out. 
And, you know, it's, it's almost as if the, to me, this would have happened had they, even if they hadn't found the yellow sign and even if they hadn't read the play, something bad was going to happen. Right. But once, once they started that ball, <laughs> which is fairly nihilistic, right? If yeah. you're just looking at the, you're just waiting for the other shoe to fall. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I think that something would have played out or maybe they were helpful. They, they had to, things had to play out this way because of the way the pieces were set up. The, the yellow taint in the painting, the, the dream, the nightmare, the church watchman, all of those things meant that, Hey, doom is coming. And in this kind of futile effort to ward it off, they inadvertently bring it on perhaps even sooner. And that's a, that's cosmic horror. That's, that's like the same way that the, uh, the reporter in, uh, Ambrose Pierce's the damn thing is revealed all of the connections and has this moment of clarity and sees things for as they horribly are. And that's the same thing as the, you know, the guy that has the super, like the, 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 the top of the pyramid story structure within call of Cthulhu, seeing how everything fits together. That's, that is cosmic horror, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the 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 hunter, the guide in our uh, Laird Baron story, right. Blackwood's baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just unlucky. Yeah, Shh. yeah. <laughs> it's just the way things play out. I, I like that. So you mentioned Bierce, and I know that this collection has a, a pretty substantial callback a pretty substantial uh uh root in an ambrose beer story luke that you read yeah so uh the first instance of carcosa is an inhabitant in carcosa and that's an ambrose beer story and i read it it's a really short fever dream kind of thing uh it's there's a lot <laughs> i would be interested in talking to a learned scholar to sort of get at what the hell all of the weird symbols in that story mean. Like there's a, there's a hairy man. There's like a, uh, there's like a, uh, I feel like a Panther or a lynx. This man encounters, basically he's walking toward the fabled city of Carcosa over and over again. And you know, the spoiler is that like he's dead or is is dying, right? Something like that. Or or never even lived at all. Yeah. John, I mentioned earlier that this story reminded me of an Edgar Allan Poe story. Mm. You're a Poe fan. <laughs> yeah. You're a Poe boy. <laughs> uh, Scaramouche. <laughs> did you see any Poe in this? Absolutely. I mean, it, it feels very Poe-ish. It feels very American Gothic. It's definitely in that tradition, but has... I, I don't know. I'm not an expert on any of this by any means, but it it seems to me it's the bridge between what Poe and some of those other Gothic writers created and what comes later with Cthulhu and Lovecraft and some of those writers where the uh, Gothic stories can be spooky and scary and ghost filled or murder filled, but there's not necessarily a hopelessness always present. I mean, there is in some of it or, a tinge of it, but these seem a little more 
hopeless, I guess. So, so uh, they, it seems like these um, more cosmic horror stories have less. I don't know. They're they're more even more hopeless than something like uh, uh, what's a good example? Like uh, the cask of Amontillado. That I mean, when you're talking about cosmic horror, that the cask of Amontillado is not a cosmic horror story, right? Because it's a very personal tale of revenge between these two guys, right? And it's scary because one guy's going to get walled up in the cellar. That is frightening. Just the idea that claustrophobia at play there. In these stories, you see the curtain being lifted on the world, and you're finding out that there's perhaps another reality behind ours where strange beings and strange things can be created, which in turn implies that we are not at the steering wheel of our own destiny. Okay. And so there is hopelessness in some of Poe. I mean, look at the Raven as well. And from that shadow, my soul (laughs) shall be lifted nevermore. But again, it's a very personal torment. It's a very personal despair. It's not, oh, by the way, nothing in the world is the way you think it is, and we're all going to be killed by it someday. Yeah, you use the the term personal there a couple different times. Like, it is sort of the, the... the the converse all the way like in a very immediate sense it's about like what's gonna happen to me i'm stuck in this wine cellar right yeah i think so i would i will be very honest and probably get nailed to the floor by fans of the show but i i have a i had a tough time i guess reading this it's not that i think it's bad by any stretch of the means it's just not something that really speaks to me as something that I would seek out to read on an everyday or every other week, even kind of basis. <laughs> I, I struggle with cosmic horror. I struggle with it as a genre because it does not speak to, I guess my lived experiences or my personal worldview in a lot of ways. And so when I read these stories where the, particularly the, the yellow sign, it it's just like, you know, everything behind the scenes is awful and uh we're all gonna die from it the end i don't know that to me (laughs) i'm not as big a fan of that i think that when we've done some of these kinds of stories on the show i have often been kind of quiet about it because i'm just i don't get it as much as other people may do uh i think that's why i like some of howard's stuff like what we've read throughout the years because there is an ability to take action against the horror of life in a lot of his stories. Whereas in these, it doesn't seem to be the case. I would offer that the other story I read the mask for tonight, if you didn't read it, it's about the, these artists, one is a sculptor and one is a painter and the sculptor, he comes across, he somehow comes across this element and he can make this element into a solution. And when he dips things in it, it turns them into this most pristine, beautiful marble. And so he needs something to take to the salon. He's trying to figure out how to finish a sculpture in time. And he and his buddy, they keep talking and they're both in love with the same woman named Genevieve. It seems like that lives with the the sculptor whose name is Boris. Oh, and yeah, she Boris. gets a fever. And the, the end of the story is that he goes crazy 
maybe because of exposure to this element or exposure to the things he read from the King in Yellow that led to his creation of the element and solution. And he takes this woman and puts her in it and turns her into a marble statue. And then he shoots himself through the heart. And the other man in the story, he has a fever and it, like four years pass and he ends up coming back to the house where this woman as a statue is because he's inherited it. And she wakes up at the end. She comes out of it and they're reunited and they get to love one another. But be- pre- preceding all this, he found out that she didn't really love him. I mean, there's a lot of like hopelessness and despair in it. But there's ultimately a tinge of happiness at the end that maybe they get to have a life now, mm-hmm. which is a little different than the yellow sign, which is not what happens in that story <laughs> no. at all. Um, so maybe less of a cosmic horror story, but still the tale of Boris in it is he discovered something he shouldn't have and it it costs him everything. It costs him the love of a good woman and he kills himself over it. Shoots himself so, through the heart. I, I guess I have a tough time with some of that. Whereas I would offer, it seems that Luke, he really digs a lot of these kinds of stories. Yeah, I do. I, I think this story is, I think, great because of the, like the structure of it. The, the recurrent themes that are, that are soft enough, but obvious enough that they really come through and just make it, creepy 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 i it's not it does not for me rank out as as one of my favoritists <laughs> of the cosmic horror stories but i think that's because i don't find it quite scary enough because there's just not enough there to like truly like shake my bones uh <laughs> i think but I think it's because this is a granddaddy story that there's the next stories in sequence that do like truly sort of shake your bones because it it's able to sort of stand on the shoulders of this and add just a couple more flourishes that just that just just take it to that next level of scary. So that's yeah, I, I like I like these topics for sure. I also like the uh, the final notes of the the first season of true detective that it's it it doesn't all have to be doom and gloom all the damn time (laughs) which i know Mm -hmm. like that's that's not something that comes through in this story yeah uh so uh john you talked about one of the stories that you read i guess maybe is this a good point to sort of segue into some of the other stories that we've covered sure uh do you want to talk about yours josh the one that you read i can talk about the repairer of reputations uh i think this is a difficult. <laughs> this is a difficult one to talk about. Did you read it? You didn't read. It. I I know. I listened to the first ten minutes. Tells to Terrify has an audio version of it, uh, and I got through like the first bit of my commute, and I just wasn't able to listen to the rest of it on the way home. Uh, so I didn't get very far into it. So this is a cool story because it, even though it was published in 1895, it's set in the United States in 1920. And it is set just after the conclusion of a, a large war. Um, and so uh, I've seen people write how uh, eerie it is that Chambers was able to somewhat presage World War I. This is, this is a neat story because it, it grapples with some 
uh, millennial anxiety, uh, not millennials, but like the, the changing of the century, right? right? We're, we're going from the 19th to the, the 20th century in just five short years after the publication of this. And uh, in the story, the United States has uh, more or less become a uh, almost a utopia, but there is an undercurrent of, of horror to the utopia. There are lethal chambers where if you so desire, you can go end your life and that's totally legal and it's fine. Uh, all you do is you make the decision to go in and you go in and it's quick and you're, you're gone and it, it doesn't, it doesn't tell you, uh, in the story how it works or how it functions or what happens to you. It just, you know, you go in and you're done. We have our point of view character, a guy named Castain, who is an unreliable narrator and he's an unreliable narrator because he, you you come to find out has either fallen off of a horse or kicked in the head by a horse. He has some, some brain trauma. He also has read the entirety of the King in yellow and was driven mad from it. And we come to find out he was uh, committed to, to an asylum. Once he gets out, he meets up with this other guy who, whose name is uh, Mr. Wild, uh, almost like Oscar Wilde, W-I-L-D-E. Right. Mr. Wild convinces Castaigne that he is the next in line in this document called the Imperial Dynasty of America, and that he is destined to become the emperor of uh, the U.S., and that he actually himself is some incarnation or some favored one of the king in yellow himself. What follows is Castaigne's efforts to, to bring this new empire of America with him at the helm of it to fruition. Uh, there, there are some murders or, or so we think that there's a complicated in some ways, uh, plot to get his Castaigne's cousin to cede the throne to him um, and his cousin doesn't know what he's talking about. And so at the end of the, the story, you're not sure if Castaigne actually has gotten in, in contact with some entity called the King in yellow and that all of this actually is real. And he's the only one that knows that. Right. Or if he's a crazy person. And so in many ways it's, it's a masterful story. I, I think it's, I said the, the yellow sign reminded me of a post story. This one reminds me of a Lovecraft story. You know, you can see those those basic ingredients of the 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 weird tales to follow this right here in both the yellow sign and in the repair of reputations. And so, John, I wish you had read this one, too, because it is just such a bonkers story. <laughs> it's, it's it's nuts. Um, I like bonkers. I'll have to check it out. It's cool. It's it, you just don't know if he's telling the truth or if he's crazy or if he's lying, like no idea. The, the suicide booth, the lethal chambers, I read somewhere online, someone speculated, you know, this is around the turn of the century when subways were, uh, becoming, uh, or were, were under construction and being used in New York. Um, and so is this character seeing those and just interpreting them as, as lethal chambers or is the U.S. really this weird, in this weird, it's not even a utopia, right? It's a dystopia. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the, everything about the story, you can't take it at face value. It's weird. So that story, 
and the yellow sign and then the story that I read in the court of the dragon are all within the king and yellow collection. But like, so, so in the court of the dragon, which was the, the other story that I read, it is bare bones, like even more bare bones than, uh, the yellow sign. But that's like a stark contrast to the weird historical, like alternate history story that you read it's it's cool that he's he's able been able to like he was able to sort of do lots of different things it's quite a bit longer than the yellow sign too Uh, yeah half again i think is long okay in the court of the dragon that i read it was shorter and maybe maybe it was the same length as the yellow sign or maybe it was half the length but it was it was an easy uh, easy read. And I guess, so this is a good, let's, b- before, before I talk about that. So how did you guys read these stories? How did you read, uh, the stories that you had, John? Project Gutenberg. Okay. Same. Same. Okay. So I, I was able to read, uh, the, in the court of the dragon in a, uh, I guess, is it a classic tales of terror, Canterbury classics, like, like collection of like, uh, horror fiction and that was kind of cool to be able to read the little front ends for for that and i read uh the the yellow sign i've got the the horror hall of fame which is like a an oldie moldy like late 80s early 90s uh anthology that was put together that i've talked about on the show before uh so it was cool to be able to read each of those and have the little bit of front matter you know before each of the stories but in the court of the dragon is a story that really only has your your narrator and maybe he's reliable maybe he's not it's not clear you all you get is his point of view and he's in church and he's recently read uh the king in yellow and he sees some glitches in the matrix he sees a harpsichord organ player who seems very sinister he's playing like discordant tones at the end of the church service and people seem to not be noticing except for the narrator. And so the narrator's horrified, but everybody else is just cool with it. So again, it's right. like he's he's seeing behind the veil. He's seeing truly what's playing out here. And he's horrified. He uh, imagines himself returning home. So this is a story that takes place in France. And he he actually lives uh, on like Rue du Dragon. Like the, the court of the dragon is like where no. he lives. Uh, and he... Th- it's never made clear who this organ player is, but he's an envoy or someone that's uh, a representation of the King in Yellow. And okay. you don't know if this dude like gets shipped off to Carcosa, if he goes straight to hell, if he's just having bad dreams, uh, what the story is. But it's it's far more akin to the, uh, the Ambrose Bierce inhabitant in Carcosa story than... Uh, the repairer of reputation story that, that Josh talked about. So in the court of the dragon is, is a bit more hand wavy, but there's, I think it's probably the, the most, uh, it has the moment to me, it was the scariest, but maybe it was because it was a shorter read and I was really able to sort of get into what this weird, uh, organ player, like his, his sort of sinister angle. I think the overall feeling of decay that you get within, uh, the yellow sign is ultimately more sickening and, and horrific. But I think for, for, for scares, you get more bang for your buck with in the court of the dragon. That sounds like, uh, 
what was that story called we read by Lovecraft, the music of Zahn? Oh, the music of Eric Zahn. Yeah, there's this maybe there's flavors of of, yeah. of the, that chamber story in in Lovecraft's inspiration. I don't know, uh, right? But certainly it came out. It came out, you know, within the King and Yellow. So so it was out and around, and Lovecraft, you know, ate it up. So it's it was good, uh, and it was a good piecemeal little story that you could pick up, you know, a, the, just reading a couple different stories all at once. It was short. So that's our that's our uh, our extra reading that we did. What else do we want to talk <laughs> about here, Freeform? I mean, clearly the yellow sign and the king in yellow is a is a a trope and a symbol and a grimoire and and content that has popped up in lots of uh, subsequent work. Maybe we can get into that. So I guess something that I had been kind of considering before we started the show, based sort of spinning off what you just said, is that. Um, I found it interesting that this is a collection of short stories called the King in yellow. Who's this like unseen figure in the play that is kind of the running thread here. And I was kind of intrigued by the way that it, it reminded me of slender man, which okay. I may sound kind of weird, but that to me, that creepy pasta sort of storytelling that's very popular right now. I think it, it is part of this tradition where there's these weird stories that are all tangentially related by this central figure, the King in yellow or slender man, whose, whose tentacles are in the story, whose fingers are in all the pies, but isn't really my understanding is slender man doesn't necessarily take direct action right in the stories. He's just like a creepy presence. It's he, uh, is the scapegoat for, for the disappearances of, of children, right? Like, okay. And, yeah, and you see these photos, these these really cleverly doctored photos with Slenderman in them, right? And so there's documents that uh, allege that Slenderman is a thing, or a real thing, right? Right. So and yeah, so yeah, yeah, I can we've, yeah, we've got the the King in Yellow who maybe inspired this play and it's cursed, but it was interesting to me this idea that. Uh, not only is the play cursed, but maybe our book that we are reading is cursed because it contains parts of the knowledge of the Yellow King. And I think that that could feed us into some true detective discussion, Luke. Yeah, yeah. They, uh... I know this has been... Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I, I, again, to to tie it back to like the the Lovecraftian uh, story trope of now that you're reading the last words of the person writing the the manuscript, you're brought into the story also, and that gives it like right. a, a sense of immediacy. I think that that's maybe the part that that you've hit hit what I'm trying to uh, encapsulate here about this Slenderman thing. Like, oh, you didn't know about Slenderman before. But now you've read all of our, our creepypastas, so now you're part of it. Like, you are now, you're not necessarily cursed, but you're wrapped up in the story, too. So I find it interesting that this tradition lives on today, even in these uh, uh, these weird internet forums. I'm going to tell you the story of Slenderman. What's, right. the, what's that you say? Who's Slenderman? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, I, I don't know. I thought that was kind of neat. Uh, just thinking about the king in yellow that way. Mm-hmm. 
That is cool. I hadn't thought about the, the meta text of it. But now I know that life is meaningless and everything is going to fade away. Good Do you segue. think that that's what is Good the segue. problem with Reggie Ledoux, Luke? Did he read The King in Yellow one too many times? I So I feel like True Detective is 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 very much fixated on like the the the, the like the theme of decay like the, right. the 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 green hell of Louisiana and everything's just sort of even though it seems lush and verdant there's this omnipresent sort of death that's there I don't know if there's unknown knowledge uh, that that Ledoux sort of possesses I think it's just the like he is evil incarnate because he's entropy and and uh, like absolute sort of amoral operating outside the bounds of like humanity. That's kind of the way it strikes me. I was I've always been kind of intrigued by. Do you remember the backlash that occurred when it ended and there wasn't a Carcosa? There wasn't yeah. like a a spooky thing that happened. What do you, th- what do you think about that? I think that is absolutely, <laughs> how do we, how do we say it? Uh, it's Chamberian, <laughs> like the presentation of, of the yellow sign and the King in yellow and Carcosa within true detective is absolutely in line with, with chambers and he- himself. Uh, in that, I mean, as far as from what I've read here, that you don't know the true content you know the true like dread of of those things. Like I think we see Carcosa uh, or an aspect of Carcosa, like in the final uh, you know beats of the first season of True Detective, where there's a sort of unveiling of that that decaying uh, s- complex, whatever it is, the compound, like the factory, right. whatever whatever it is, like that is that is Carcosa, at least within the mind of 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 Ledoux and he's he sees himself as you know the king in yellow uh, I guess spoiler alert for true detective season I mean, four. we're just talking <laughs> about all of this stuff like, yeah yeah <laughs> it absolutely is Chamberian and it's is it's in its presentation and for people that that didn't like that that's okay that's like that it was it was never meant to be an outright uh beat you on the head horror story with a ghost. Spooky. That's, that's, that's Luke's perspective. Anyway, <laughs> I, I, I agree with that. I, I remember what, I remember reading all those fan theories online about what was going to happen and thinking like, Oh yeah. Okay. That could be kind of fun. But then when it really played out, you thought, I thought this is the way it should be because there was never any supernatural element to this show. It was scary and weird and rotten but that was what it was talking about, not that there's actually a yellow king who's making Reggie Ledoux kill people across the state of Louisiana. Yeah, it it works better this way. Josh, did we spoil it for you? Uh, I had been spoiled for a while. <laughs> I think Luke once read me an article about uh, from Esquire, your grand unified true detective theory is missing the goddamned point. <laughs> that's that's a good title uh (laughs) (laughs) it was that was that was a weird moment in time uh when that was coming out and i don't know i i think that final 
episode has such a an interesting little little spin on it that it's I'm not saying that it's subversive like it's just or that it's a happy ending just that it presents the sort of like flip side of the coin for how you can how you can sort of address the the conversation that's being had about you know entropy and decay and 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 death uh and that in and of itself is a step away from the cosmic horror and chambers and a step towards the noir elements that also are of equal importance within like why that show so great. Yeah. Is there, this is even further off into the weeds, but do you think we're living in this like JJ Abrams mystery box fiction era? Like that's what people want. That's what people expect because that was what was in lost that there, that there was something to <laughs> unbox and, and now we're kind of always on the lookout for it. Cause I remember this happening with, it happened with breaking bad. Like how do we got to unpack all these symbols and we'll know what the finale is before it comes on TV or star Wars, the last Jedi, everybody wanted to know who Ray's parents were before that movie and that kind of stuff. Do you think that that's, has that always been a thing or are we getting more into it these days? I think, and this is not me saying that you're oversimplifying things, John. I think that that perspective is a little bit of an oversimplification on, in terms of like the majority voice. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it's a little bit of the, the old man get off my lawn kind of perspective. Like I, I agree. I think that that's how pop culture in general is, uh, is is signaling that that's what they that, that's the that's the the butt hurt attitude that can come out in in those instances. But I think <laughs> within the genre and within a lot of the listenership that we probably have, and at least within like a lot of the material that we consume within sort of like like our little niche of fandom, like I don't want to say we're we're in on it and we get it, but like to be cool like but it's it's a greater appreciation for like what the actual intention of the of the genre is and so yeah i think a lot of people want to want to have the deepest most illustrated backstory that they can but i don't think that everybody wants wants to have that and i think the people that are writing a lot of the core content that really sort of drives the field they're not like trying to do that. I think it's more of like what you see popularly out, out in the world. That's, that's Luke's hot take. <laughs> that's Luke's hot it's take. out there. It's yeah. out. That's out there in the, the void. I think, Oh, we lost, oh, no. we lost John to the void. He's like, out. he's <laughs> we'll like, keep that in. That. We'll keep, we'll, we're keeping all this. We lost you to Carcosa. Or maybe we got booted. I don't know. Hey, are you there? Yeah. Oh, God. Uh, we lost you to the void. <laughs> I, I was just... I, Luke started to say something like, that's an oversimplification, and then that was the last thing I heard, and then you came back in and said one word, and then it, my internet went out. Weird.
It's Kubricky. It's because we were making fun of the king in yellow. I'm sorry. It's yeah. He's he's on our interweb. He's so angry. <laughs> I wanted. I, yeah, I guess with the whole mystery box thing and the general need to have everything explained, I think people that get butt hurt by not knowing Ray's parentage or or whatnot are are missing the point. I think they're missing the, the, the broader plot and they're looking at the threads, but they're missing the, the greater tapestry that is, is my opinion. I don't know if that's a hot take or not, but I, I <laughs> you know, I'm one of the few that, that did enjoy lost and, and did find some meaning in the, the ending. And, you know, I realize that it's flawed and it's not what, you know, it's not what, a lot of people wanted. It's not even really what I wanted, but that, that is the show that we got. And I, I dig it for what it is. Um, right. And I wish that it didn't try so hard to answer. So such specific points. Yeah. That's the, that's the falling. Yeah. I feel like it, it, it tried too hard to be too narrow. And, and because of that, it missed the mark. I think. I got you, man. I, I feel you. That's <laughs> <laughs> Broad strokes, man. Yeah. What else? Uh, so we've talked about other stories. I guess we've talked about True Detective. Uh, we've talked about uh, the stories we've read. Uh, we haven't talked about any other specific authors that have done stuff with the king in yellow but okay. i have to say i'm not informed about that but there are uh sisters to uh chambers work that pull in that play yeah there are chambers pastiches even um one in particular that uh i read about but wasn't able to find the story was a carl edward wagner story that is a follow-up actually to um the repairer of reputations and let's see if i jotted the title of it down uh it's called the river of night's dreaming by carl edward wagner okay and um that evidently fits in really nicely with repairer of reputations in in so far as it deals with uh similar themes Similar plot strands. Uh, there's a character named Castane, although I'm not certain that it's the same character from uh, Repair. And uh, it's regarded as a, a really well-written uh, story that, that kind of expands the King and Yellow mythos. Cool. Yeah, I'm looking here. I just quickly pulled that up. Apparently, that story was included within an anthology published by chaosium called the hastur cycle okay uh let's see what it goes for on a books i bet it's not cheap i bet it's not i bet it's not crazy but i bet it's not easily accessible twelve dollars hey look at you 1146 nice dude i went over that's with that's with free shipping that's a good deal it's probably just like a like a good yeah. 
<laughs> a readable copy. Readable. Uh, oh. Yeah, so it's oh, it's fair. So yeah, so it's probably trashed out. But you can get that in the, the larger Hester cycle, which I'm looking at it here. It has Ambrose Bierce. It has you know uh, the the repair of reputations and the yellow sign by Chambers, and then antecedents, and it includes the Whisper in the Darkness here by Lovecraft. That's what I was about. Uh, to, that was my next call out. Okay, because does he reference it directly? Yep he he mentions Hastur. Uh, the Lake of Hali, um, uh, Carcosa, maybe even. Okay. Yep. The Lake of Hali is so b- at the end of the uh, the 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 other story that I read in the Court of the Dragon, our narrator <laughs> sees that evil organist and sort of blinks his eyes again, and maybe he's like I interpret he's like on the on the shores of the Lake of Hali, like he's coming up to Carcosa. Maybe he's in hell. Maybe he's like lost out into the cosmic ether like it's hard to tell what the, what's going on at that point it sort of hits the the fever dream sort of <laughs> sort of uh a territory of the uh the inhabitant of Carco- inhabitant of carcosa story uh but i love i love that it's like the uh the island of lang the the, the stuff that we see uh and we know from lovecraft's larger world building and like the stuff we see in howard's work the same kinds of things here only it's different it's different words and it's different sort of stories and it has a different flavor and it's a it's it's a slightly different uh network it's it's like different orbits but they all yeah. sort of coalesce yeah um I, I jotted down in my notes this flow chart that uh, uh starts with beers and then an arrow goes to chambers and then to hp lovecraft and from there it would web out into many other authors uh-huh. uh and then i put a bracket around them and wrote the word poe but I, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to represent it it just kind of came to me so i jotted it down um but there's there's no denying that this collection of stories uh belongs in you know the 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 higher echelons of the the weird tale um if maybe if not for the quality of the writing at least for um the um the influence that it made on the genre it's a weird one man like i'm it's i'm not gonna say it's out of place but it is it is different (laughs) it is not like an mr james ghost story or uh a slightly more two-fisted like Howard like mm-hmm. horror story that we've read just any of those like it is an it, it's a it's a it's a, a dreamy kind of thing so so where are we going to go from here guys uh as far as the the next grimoire that we're going to discuss we're kind of doing this on the fly we don't <laughs> we don't know where well, we're going Josh is cutting his hand and sprinkling his blood on the blank page which will reveal <laughs> the invisible ink that tells us what our next set is. That's Dude, right. It was just lemon juice. You didn't have to do all of that. <laughs> <laughs> Shit. I need a bandage. <laughs> Stat. <laughs> Luke, we like direction. And we, we're in need of your tarot readings to give us some indication of where to go next. Three is a number of power. We will draw. We will, we will consult the cards. We will see what is revealed. I have my tarot deck from Amazon. Uh, I've cut the cards. Josh, would you like to cut them? I'll give them to you. You you shuffle to your heart's content so that it has at least 
the psychic energy of a, a, at least a couple of the comrades. I'm going to touch it to the monitor. Oh, there we go. So we have, we have John's psychic energy on it as well. So I'm going to do the the three. Flip the three. The first will be Josh. The second will be John, and the third will be me. Okay, so we have Josh is the Four of Cups, John is the Emperor, and I am the King of Wands. got to look up the Four of Cups. Yeah, we need some on-the-fly interpretations here. I've been looking every time I go into eight books for like a tarot book, and I haven't yet come up with one. But I will. Let's see. I'm on Biddy Tarot. Me too. Oh, I should go to a different site then. You stay on Biddy Tarot. Uh, the Four of Cups, according to learn LearnTarot.com. I thought it was like Learn to Rot, and that doesn't... <laughs> LearnTarot.com. That's what the king in yellow would want. <laughs> to Learn to Rot. The Four of Cups represents self-absorption, apathy, and going within and being introspective. Mm, that's that is very Chamberian here. <laughs> the 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 art here is a cloud handing the fourth of three, like the fourth of four cups, to a man that is sitting underneath a tree and has his arms crossed. Mm-hmm. He's thinking about himself. The next Can one I, is the emperor. Can I see the emperor? Yeah, dude, this is you. So he's got a an onk and an orb. Yeah, so we have a king that's holding an orb and an onk uh, sitting at a throne. Okay. According to Biddy Tarot, the emperor tarot card meaning keywords are, if it's upright, it's an authority father figure who provides structure and a solid foundation. He is, uh, as an archetype, he is a masculine figure of authority. Yeah. And he has a long white beard, which suggests that he has acquired years of wisdom and experience. That's you all around. Behind, behind his throne are barren mountains, <laughs> and the throne itself is decorated with four ram's heads. That's true, yeah. Representing intellectual heights of determination, action, initiative, and leadership. Oh, so maybe that means that you're the decider. You're the decider. That's what it means. Let's, oh. see. Let's see what the king of wands says. All of these were facing up, by the way. Okay. I know that you can deal with like inversions and stuff, but when I flipped them, maybe I screwed up in that they were all like that when I shuffled. But I'm not gonna. I'm gonna. I'm not gonna embrace that. I'm gonna say that's that. That's what fate. That's what fate decreed. Decreed. The King of Wands says, uh, "Creative, inspiring, forceful, charismatic, and mm. bold." I'm gonna say that the forceful bit was my sort of like a strong arming of the structure of tonight's episode and like my 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 hand on the rudder or was it's it a mighty hand <laughs> my i got yeah that's utterly delightful that's just awesome i like so, that one too it's got a little gecko on it so what do these cards tell us about our future well i think it i think it speaks to the fact that john is going to decide it does and in my heart of hearts what i have decided is that we will be pursuing clark ashton smith in the next clark ashton smith (laughs) in the next episode and his book of ibon awesome 
Nice. That's so gets sexy. We'll we'll do some research. We'll figure out the appropriate stories, and we'll make an announcement. Stay on the internet, people. You'll be able to find us. Where can the people find us, Josh? They can find us on the web at thecromcast.blogspot.com. We're on Twitter at thecromcast. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash thecromcast. You can email us thecromcast at gmail.com. Or you could call us 859-429-CROM. Speak to us in the language of Duvon Koo and tell us sick blasphemies from the depths of hell. <laughs> and we'll see you a little bit further down the road of grimoires. Nice. I remember Duvon Koo. Pulled that out, dude. <laughs> yeah, I don't know where it came from.
This Amazon description makes it sound like the Book of Ibon is featured in Smith's stories, The Door to Saturn and The Coming of the White Worm. Oh, okay. cool. Mm, further, Lynn Carter knew a good thing when he saw it and decided it would be fun to write and read the remaining Ibonic chapters. <laughs> Thanks, Carter. Yeah. You know what's a good idea? The Book of Ibon. You know who's going to steal that idea? Lynn Carter. Me, Lynn Carter. (laughs) (laughs) Who's got two thumbs and is going to steal Clark Ashton Smith's idea? Me, Lynn Carter. Lynn Carter. (laughs) Pestis the shit out of some stuff. You got cartered.